Gentlemen, good afternoon. Uh, welcome to the Vegas Gang podcast for October twenty second, two thousand eleven. Uh, the Vegas Gang is a roundtable discussion show for issues related to casinos in Las Vegas, Macau, and the rest of the world. This is definitely the smartest podcast on the entire internet. A line I kind of stole from two people that are in our audience here, but it kind of tweaked it a little bit. So thank you guys. A little hat tip for that one. Um, I'm going to go around the table and introduce the guys. We have. Mr. Jeff Simpson, the author of the always insightful Simpson on Vegas column on Tilly Hard 3. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you, Hunter. It's uh, great to be here, and uh, welcome to Las Vegas for all, the, all those of you who uh, hail from elsewhere. So uh, thanks for coming to see us. We have Dr. Dave Schwartz, the director of UNLV's Center for Gaming Research and the recently extremely prolific writing machine. Uh, welcome, <laughs> Dr. Dave. Thank you. I want to know how many of you guys are glad to be here. That's yeah. not very many. How many of you guys are glad to be here? <laughs> All right. And on the end, Mr. Chuck Monster, editor-in-chief of VegasTripping.com. What's happening, Chuck? Not much. I'm glad to be here with Dave and Jeff and Hunter. Oh. A pregnant pause. And you guys. Let's go. Uh, yeah, my name's Hunter Killigas. I'm at RateVegas.com, and here we go. A big welcome to you guys, our live audience, for the first annual... Vegas Internet Mafia Family Picnic. We're incredibly happy that you're here. Um, it's one thing to note, at the end of our uh, festivities, I think we're going to take some questions when we're all the way through our entire program. Um, so if you do have any questions for us, it can, they can be casino industry questions, something that you wish we talked about that we'd never gotten to. Uh, they can be questions for the Vegas tripping crew, pretty much anything. We're not going to spend too much time on that at the end, but it, uh, in case there's ever anything you've ever wondered... Um, that will be your chance. So kind of, you know, store that away in the back of your head. Um, so, here we go. Yes, Jeff. I, would, I, I wanted to open up by just uh, mentioning this space and the property. Uh, first of all, um, my obsession with parking is probably well known <laughs> in the, uh, those who follow our podcast or any of my writing. And uh, I want to say something really good and really bad about this property. First of all, um, I've, I've long, um, ragged on, um, Aladdin and then Planet Hollywood about the design of the place with parking, um, ha- funneling self-parkers through the, gr- through the mall, um, the Desert Passage and now Miracle Mile. Um, and, uh, today I went through the, uh, self-park as is my, uh, norm in town and uh, two decks of the garage were closed, but um, so I was unable to get a spot. I circled around for a while. Uh, Dr. Dave was much luckier than I was. So uh, that was a real downside for me, but I discovered something that is a real plus about this property. Um, I almost never valet park, but after maybe a, a string of invective, uh, many, much of it profane, I... Uh, Exited the part of the self park garage after uh, 20 minutes of um, driving up the planet's ozone, and and uh, and circled around to the valet. And I knew the valet, um, ex- you know, accessed off Harmon was one of the better valets for access to the casino. 
but I had never used it before, um, except when they had the opening night party, and I think I had to park here back in 2000, but I had to park there. So I used it, and it was so sweet. And so, you know, I am going to reevaluate all my constant complaining about this property. And, the, you know, you know, you got to tip a few bucks each direction, but it's worth it. So use the valet parking here. It's very nice. It, it casts the entire property in a whole new light. And so that's one thing. The other thing is this venue. Um, one thing that this, this venue has... A, a, it's it's an important memory for me. Bef- a few days before the property opened as the Aladdin um, in August 2000, um, I was in this very space with this guy, um, Richard Goodenough, or I'm sorry, Alan Goodenough, for the uh, CEO of London Clubs, who was the guy who funneled a whole bunch of money in to help um, Jack Summer finish Aladdin. Um, and I've referred to him in writing as another one of the suckers that comes to Las Vegas and loses a bunch of money. Um, he was a very nice British guy who thought that he was getting in on the ground floor. Um, well, unfortunately for him, the second floor. But um, <laughs> it was a casino idea that not too many people thought was going to work for him and probably for Jack Summer as well. But this... I came to visit him and interview him here a few days before the opening, and he was excited. He uh, was a little annoyed about the extra money he had to throw into the place to keep it able to open. Um, but um, and you know, but he did in- increase his stake in the property that would eventually be valued at less than nothing. Um, but but the, the the cool thing about this. Um, he gave me to hold a couple of the most valuable chips, as far as I know, that have, that have ever existed in Las Vegas. I may be wrong, but I held a 25, a 10, and a $5 million plaque. Um, they're about this, a little bigger than the size of a deck of cards. He gave you, um, he gave you these to hold? He get, did give them to me to hold. He took a look at me and decided I couldn't outrun him or security. <laughs> and... and uh, but he gave them to me to hold, and, you know, the casino wasn't open, and obviously there wouldn't be much doubt about someone trying to cash those in. But I will admit for a fleeting uh, moment that it was very cool to hold, you know, $40 million in three chips or plaques uh, in my hand. So that was a very cool thing. I've done some great interviews in the lounge here um, when it was still Aladdin. Um, there was just this sweet little VIP area off the casino that um, was a favored place to come meet people on the strip because this this space was, uh, you know, about as deserted as an airplane hangar at Area 51. Um, so it was, it was uh, you know, a very cool place. Times have changed at this property, almost all for the better. But uh, I do have some nostalgia for, for this venue I never ate at Commander's Palace, which was behind me someplace, but everybody says how great it was. So, anyway, um, I just wanted to mention some of my great nostalgia for this uh, place and a new appreciation for valet parking here. So, thanks. In honor of that, the, uh, the uh, Earl of Sandwich, Earl of yes. Sandwich has dedicated a Jeff Simpson pastrami sandwich 
We are we on are coming sale today only. <laughs> for for those of you uh, listening on the internet, we are coming to you live from directly above Earl of Sandwich. So wow, uh, that's it, sort of an important like landmark. Meat. <laughs> All right, let's get into some of our topics for today. I think I want to start with Win. Um, there's been uh, in the last few days, the last week and a half or so, some interesting um, changes and in information coming out of that uh, whole organization. They had their uh, quarterly call. We have what has basically been confirmed as a leak of some drawings of what their Kotai project is going to look like, uh, and some interesting follow-up on some of the changes at that property regarding some of their um, the Blush Nightclub, Alex Restaurant, and some of the other stuff they're doing. So let's talk with the Kotai. Let's start with the Kotai thing. The Win Kotai project, uh, which will be supposedly opening in the Kotai region of Macau in. Uh, the end of 2014 or 20, early 2015, I think, or is it my year off? 2015, 16? It's yeah. a ways away. End of 15, beginning of 16, I think. Um, they've been very secretive about this project. They will describe it as the best work they've ever done. There's a heavy dose of hyperbole whenever the topic comes up. Uh, so, of course, those of us that are interested in this sort of thing have been watching it closely and are very curious about what they're going to do. We had Derrider Butler, Wynn's head of architecture, on this show in the spring, and he, he gave us his anecdote about the sort of bear hug school of architecture, um, which, if you haven't heard it, it's a, it's a really, it was a really fun conversation. So anyway, to make that long story incredibly long, um, we, we saw in this tribute video this week that made its way onto the Internet uh, Steve Wynn in his office talking about Siegfried and Roy and what is sitting over his shoulder, this giant uh, image of a hotel that none of us have ever seen but looks surprisingly like something that they would build. So, Chuck, you know, this sort of all... The, the original video was was noticed by a Vegas Stripping uh, forum member, a Vegas Stripping member posting on the forums. Um, what, do, what are your thoughts after seeing this thing on, on the web? Yeah, I was, uh, I was really shocked to see that. Uh, Apollo 28 is the, the VT reader who posted that with the question, is this win Kotai? And it took an eternity for me to get the video to load. I think it was because everybody was crashing it at once. But when it finally loaded, I stopped it, and I took a screenshot, and I looked, and I just couldn't believe it. Not only could I not believe that there was a, a, a photo of of Wynn with Warren Buffett and Bill Gates in his <laughs> finest khakis, looking as dorky. like a family photo. It was <laughs> yeah, so cheesy. Photo. It's like the genius and the really rich guy, and then Steve, who like kind of wants to be both. <laughs> right. You, know? you can see his his aspirational model in friends, but uh, you see uh, over the other shoulder was this Wynn-looking building. It's obviously a, uh, a the next step evolution from the Encore Macau building. Not sure if you guys have seen what that thing looks like, but it looks like a perfume bottle. Instead of just having stripes, it's got like borders around it. So they have the white borders around it with, with all the mahogany glass in front with two arms that kind of come down like this with a sloping, sloping ceilings and then the stripes on the arms. And then there's like an outcropping building in the back and two fountains directly in front. And it kind of... When I first looked at it, I, I was certainly uh, betwixt. Yeah, I, was I like, wasn't sure what to WTF, make of it. WTF, dude? Yeah. What? Yeah, what? You know? Yeah. But after thinking about it, after looking at it more, you could see that they 
you know, with the slopes, they actually put rooms in the end caps, kind of right. like what they did with Encore. And it looks like yeah. maybe they even have outdoor components, right, yeah. instead at of, each level. Yeah. Instead of doing, like, a, the sloping glass ceiling like Luxor, which means you have parts of this the room you're going to bang your head against, they actually did, like, terraced right. uh, uh, suites outdoor is what it looks like. Right, so maybe, yeah. you know... 20 suites terracing all the way up to the top. So on the top floor, you would have this incredible view from your terrace, like the equivalent of, you know, the Las Vegas Hilton Sky Villa or something. The, aesthetically, the thing that I found to be most surprising, and I posted this in a comment to, to the VT post about it, was how all of Wynn's buildings previously, and I mean by Wynn, I mean post-Mirage Wynn, is they're all elegantly and very delicately asymmetric. You know, that swoop, it, it, it balances in a way, but it's not, you know, it's, it's like a dress wrapping around a woman's leg. You know, it's like just got this kind of nice fashion, sexy thing to it. This does not have that. It's symmetrical. It's balanced. One side's the same as the other. And it, it to me, it, it that specific, it's the symmetricalness of it, takes a lot of the imagination away to me. And I can't explain why or how, but you look at it and, and it makes sense. And possibly they could be doing that on purpose to counteract against the city center, you know, the five degrees angling in two different directions, this swoop and that swoop. And I don't know. I don't get really get the impression that they design in response to their competitors. I kind of feel like they kind of try to float above what mm-hmm. all of their competitors do and just feel like they can sort of set the market and they can be sort of the tastemakers and everyone else will follow. Uh, I would be surprised if we found out that it was a direct response to someone else's Well, product. not necessarily a direct response because also City of Dreams, which is right next door, or around the corner, up the block from where Wind Kotai will be built, is an amalgam of six shape buildings which have very direct... Uh, they all tell a story about water, each building. So this is this is kind of a different thing. It's not so thematic directly, but it has a, a very different, almost more simple design to it. You see, it it really is just a, a hug, but it looks kind of like a lobster in some ways, yeah. too. Honestly, it reminds me of um, photos of, like, hotels you see on the beach in, like, Cancun. It's, like, these designs... I was kind of underwhelmed at my first viewing. Granted, we're looking at a grainy render, uh, so it's of something that hasn't been built. It's probably way too early to pass judgment. <laughs> that won't stop me, however. Uh, but, um, it, I, it, you know, the building itself didn't grab me, though I think the concept, it, it looks like there's a lot of incredible indoor-outdoor kind of combination stuff going on in the low-rise, which I think has potential to be pretty amazing. But um, the building itself was not something that took my breath away. Well, I was thinking that maybe we could read a little bit in the Roger Thomas's talk about the Chinese influences and see maybe they're borrowing from an entirely different design language yeah. that we're really not privy to here in the West. So there's that. I also thought it reminded me of two things. Number one, the fact you of the, the rooms and the arms coming out reminds me a lot of the original Caesar's Palace, 
which Jay Sarno modeled on St. Peter's Square, where you've got the colonnades coming out. And there were rooms in that originally, so it kind of reminds me of that. And a little bit of one of the re many renderings that are floating around for the Grandissimo, which had these water features kind of spilling down the sides, and it was very, which I don't know if that's what this was doing, but it kind of looks similar. So it's really interesting if you kind of imagine, imagine that. Uh, it would be fascinating to see what the last 10 buildings that Steve and DeRider and Roger looked at before right. this, they came up with this. I also got a little taste of the Xanadu with, yeah. the, with the terraces specifically, yeah. which was never built, but yeah. planned for the Excalibur. Excalibur, yeah. Right. Hopefully it's not an atrium inside. Hopefully. <laughs> uh, from Kotai, the other thing that was interesting about their call was Wynn was talking quite a bit about Miami. They asked, Miami's one of the, uh, Florida's one of the states that's considering adding gaming. Florida and Massachusetts are probably... Uh, the two that seem to be uh, coming up the most often as far as where are we going to see new casinos. And Wynn was asked about Miami on their call, and uh, he seemed pretty bullish about the possibility of Miami. Jeff, what did you listen to that call? What did you think about what he said? Well, he, you know, and I know this from a long um, history of talking to Wynn about development opportunities and um, – his former wife is from Miami. Wynn spent a lot of time there as a young man. And uh, he has always waxed eloquently about, you know, getting a chance to build a big casino resort in Miami. Um, some of his competitors in the business, uh, including one who, rather than building hugging casinos, builds apparently flipping you off casinos. Um, uh is trying to juice the legislature apparently into into giving him, you know, um, a monopoly or a duopoly in South Florida. Um, I think Wynn would prefer to have a competitive marketplace there where there's a few places with him getting to build one. Um, I know that he would like it, and I have long thought that there is, um, aside from potentially the cost prohibit cost prohibitive and unlikely to be approved and uh, you know California Coastal Commission uh, even eventually that they would probably block something really dramatic but Southern California would be a great place for a good casino resort but Miami Beach may be the best place um, I'm not convinced where Genting wants to build is the best place it's in the city of Miami at the old Miami Herald, El Nuevo Herald complex um, off of um, Interstate 95. But um, Wynn would love to build in Florida. Um, I think that that would be a great venue for him. He understands the market. Um, you know, if you think about cities um, in the United States where a Wynn moniker and with a city name, you know, Wynn Miami Beach, um, would be pretty impressive. And, uh, um, you know, there's another casino that's been built there that is almost ready to turnkey into a casino, the Fontainebleau. But, you know, Wynn would never willingly accept somebody else's property. That's just not his way. Um, he would want to build something himself. So it would be very exciting. Florida, I lived there for 11 years and uh, love it. It's a fantastic market. It has a built-in uh, um, group of people who like it, and by adding casino gaming to the state, um, it would 
attract incredible energy. I think, you know, you, all the New Yorkers and New Englanders and Philadelphians who go down to Atlantis now, you know, so much more convenient to stay in the country. Um, you wouldn't have to deal with quite the extortionate kind of monopoly advantage Atlantis has in terms of their pricing. Um, so I, I could easily see, you know, Wynn doing what he could to get in there. The, the big wild card for me is the Florida legislature. Um, it's at least as crooked as Nevada's. And, um, and it, you know, it's a state with, you know, a bunch of interests that um, are below the surface. Um, I have my suspicions that the crooked Rick Scott governor, um, the former health care executive, which um, certainly implies crookedness on its face, um, he is. Uh, he looks to be in the pocket of Sheldon Adelson. We'll see if that's true. Um, Wynn has been known to spring a surprise on people before, but um, you know, if that bill comes through with an acceptable tax rate, Wynn will do everything he can to get in there. But it's going to rely on the juiced, juiced politics of Florida to decide what actually happens. I hope he can. I think it'd be great for the company great for people on the East Coast, and uh, unfortunately, a real negative for Las Vegas. You know, I don't buy into the, you know, everybody always says, oh, it creates more customers. Florida is the kind of a place that would steal some of our best customers, and uh, I think it's not a plus for Las Vegas if Florida um, becomes a destination casino market. So those are my thoughts there. Dave, anything to go before we move on? No. no okay, nothing. fair enough. I got something to add. Yeah, go ahead, Chuck. Uh, five years from now, we'll see you all at the Florida Internet Mafia family picnic <laughs> at Wynn, Miami. Yeah. Um, I want to move on from Wynn to talk about the Tropicana. Uh, we had Tropicana former president Tom McCartney as our guest for Vegas yeah. Podcast in Palooza last year. And that explains why no one would be our guest this year. <laughs> And, oh, come on, he was uh, great. You know, the Tropicana has been through a really interesting two-year kind of period. They, they uh, started in with some renovations that really had a lot of people um, optimistic about where they were going to take the property and what was going to be coming next. When that was sort of, when we had Tom on the show, it was pretty much at the height of that. People were very excited about what was happening at the Trop. He made jokes. He did. He was a great guest. Um, since then, though, especially recently, the Trump has been having a harder time. Uh, Tom is now out as the president. He resigned that job. Um, their Nikki Beach collaboration seems to have gone south. And the Mob Experience attraction is bankrupt and kind of its status is questionable. Dave, you wrote about this a little bit, trying to examine, you know, are they imploding quickly or is this kind of just business as usual? I think a lot of it's par for the course. You know, if you look at any property in the Strip, they all have a lot of turnover with their entertainment. You know, as I said in my piece, uh, Tom McCartney leaving, I don't really know what's behind that. None of us up here know, so I'm, I'm not even going to speculate. It could be a lot of things. But... When you kind of – the spin that I got from a couple of folks who interviewed me about this was like, oh, my God, the place is unraveling so quickly and it's going to be imploded. And I'm like, well, no, probably not because if you look at it, they put all that money into the renovations, which are still there. You know, it's, that's still ramping up. 
Yeah, you know, you do have Gladys Knight leaving. You do have Brad Garrett leaving. You've got that, which I think is part of the usual ferment among entertainment, you know, and in the piece, I drew some parallels to Wynn and Venetian, which had an incredible amount of that in the early years. You look at the other decisions they made. You know, Nikki Beach. When it happened, I'm like, well, how's this going to be different from one and done at in Reno at GSR, one and done in Resorts Atlantic City, and just kind of got the happy smile back. Like, ah, it'll be wonderful because everybody's wearing white and there's a dancer over there. Uh, this is at the opening party thing which was freezing. It was windy and really cold when they did that. And the poor wait staff is in the skimpy stuff. So, you know, nobody really had an answer for like, well, strategically we made a mistake in Atlantic City because we're trying to do X and the market demanded Y and we looked at Vegas. We know that the market wants Z and we're going to give them Z. Nobody did that. So it's like, okay, well, I guess you guys know what you're doing because you're all businessmen and you've obviously made a lot of money doing what you're doing. Apparently not, you know. So I think Nikki Beach is a common thread there. Now, the mob experience, I can speak to a little bit more directly. Um, as some of you probably know, I do a lot of work in Las Vegas history and kind of got wind of what they were doing and didn't have any direct dealings with them, but I know they were trying to get some of the images that we have at the university and saying, well, we're an educational institution, so we should get them for free, which right away is a, t is a bad tip-off. And you're like, okay, we want the Nevada State University system to basically subsidize our, you know, private enterprise exhibit here. So bad, bad sign. But really, if you look at it, on the face of it, that was a ridiculous idea. It's the kind of thing that a 15-year-old kid would come up with and would try to get his parents to go ahead with it. I mean, it's just ridiculous. You know, the hologram. I don't believe that they actually did print interviews and the people just took the hologram stuff at face value. You know, this is not... So for people that don't know yeah, what you're talking about with the they, hologram. They wanted to have like a hologram of Bugsy Siegel, you know, kind of like the holodeck on the Enterprise D. <laughs> just interacting with people. And it's like, well, this is stupid. There's no way... This is going to, there's no way some attraction in the Tropicana is, you know, don't want to say anything against the Tropicana, but there's no way that this groundbreaking technology is going to be here. <laughs> that it wouldn't be at Disney or, you know, Microsoft or Apple or somebody like that would be developing this. So, yeah, I mean, they, it was like hollow Bugsy Siegel is going to come out and interact. Like, well, that's stupid. And they wanted to do a thing with the RFIDs where you'd go around and you'd get your little gangster name and you would interact and you would have a final fate at the end where you get made or whack. When I went through it, that was totally offline. Uh, and it really, they didn't know what it was. You know, on one hand, it was kind of the Tony and Tina's wedding. We're going to have the actors playing very broad stereotypes, which might be a little bit offensive to some of us of hey! Italian ancestry. You know, um, so we're going to have a little bit of that. And we're also going to have what we say is this high-brow historical exhibit, which ended up really underwhelming with a lot of, not even artifacts, just things from the families that were very interesting to the families, you know. Mickey Cohen's baby shoes that was bronzed. I mean, wonderful for his family to have and, you know, his descendants. To somebody just looking for, like, hey, I want to know what the relationship was between organized crime and the development of Las Vegas, not so big. So really, that was kind of a bad idea from the start. And the fact that they went ahead with it, I don't know what that says about the, ma the management. Because clearly you would think, as much savvier businessmen than I am, 
they would have that BS detector that says, wait a second, this isn't going to work. Can't we just do some kind of something derivative of bodies or Titanic or something like that? So that, that's my thought on the mob experience. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny. I never saw it, but I heard nothing but kind of negative comments about that attraction. And it, <laughs> I, I, re, I remember a few, maybe a month ago, I retweeted something that somebody had said about it closing. And I got this angry response from the mob experiences Twitter kind of saying, this is false. We're totally doing fine. What are you talking about? Don't be a jerk. Um, and I was like, oh, well, you know, okay. And here we are. <laughs> They're well, pretty much toast. So uh, I think that's very telling. If I can just say what I would have done if I was in their position, I just would have gone to HBO, licensed the Sopranos, and then just done the Sopranos Interactive. Yeah, license all that stuff from the Sopranos, and then you don't have to worry about messing around with the historical exhibits. It's just all fun. So that, that would have been a much better decision than trying to create something that could not be created. I, I know that um, when it first opened, uh, I think there were a few people who liked it in the media. Steve Fries really liked it. A few other people did. Um, um, I read Dave's column, and I think I tweeted or um, expressed my incredible... I was irritated because I felt that they were trying to you know, get a jump on the downtown mob museum, which I think is going to be challenged in terms of getting, you know, significant crowds. But I like the fact that it's a serious academic endeavor um, about an important subject. I like the fact that it's downtown. Um, you know, you can't stop free enterprise from trying to steal a beat on something like that. And so that irritated me about the Tropicana from the start. Um, in terms of the Tropicana itself, um, last year when we had Tom McCartney on, I was sort of skeptical about the property, you know, about his, you know, saying, oh, we expect to position ourselves right at the top of the middle tier of properties. I tried to push him a little bit on that. I was like, well, you know, do you consider Mandalay Bay in the middle tier? You really think you can compete against Mandalay Bay? I mean, that's laughable. Um, I do feel that the property, um, you know, and, and the idea that it could compete against this property is laughable. I mean, this is a property that was built at the time, a decade ago, and, uh, you know, is a lot, objectively, a lot nicer. Somebody who comes into this place is going to be wowed so much more than going into the Tropicana. When I used to drive in from Southern California to Las Vegas in 1980, um, you'd come around you know, the corner, um, and when you finally got to see on Interstate 15, see Las Vegas, the Trop were two of the biggest towers that you could see. They're the first ones. You know, Hacienda was so small in the foreground. Tropicana was big. Looking at the skyline at night now, Tropicana is like, you know, two mini-me's. I mean, it's not that big. And it's not an objectively, you know, um, you know um, dramatic looking property. They spent $180 million or whatever it was um, taking a property that had sunk to the very bottom of Las Vegas along with the now closed Sahara, maybe maybe Circus, you know, you know, one of the dumpier joints in town. And and there's no doubt about it. The employees were demoralized. The property was dirty and looked like crap. There was nothing really to attract people there at all. The only you know the Two shows that I thought were lame, Luxor stole them. Um, you know, I mean, it's just—it was just a giant, 
a giant steaming, um, you know, property <laughs> at, on the corner. And so they spent 180 million bucks keeping that place fresh enough, I think, for an eventual, an eventual real estate sale. I think it was a genius move to buy it for the price they did, buying the debt and getting the property the way they did. Nice job for them, um, for Onyx and Alex Yemenijin. Um, the money was money well spent generally, um, refreshing the rooms. The property has leapfrogged above the lowest category of properties, but it's certainly at the low end of the middle, um, if that. Probably, I would say, more objectively, the top of the bottom end. Um, but good for them. It's still not a bad place to stay. I love the new sports book. Poker Room looks okay. They did a lot, you know, they, they, uh, they drove up, you know, the, you know, American price of white paint. Um, <laughs> they, uh, you know, there's a lot of good things to say about, about Tropicana. But they, uh, you know, they, and, and you can't blame marketing and PR people for trying to pitch it as better than it was. You know, I think most consumers can see through it. Those who didn't, you know, were just, you know, excitable and probably now understand the reality. But they did make some really bad decisions among most of their solid ones. I don't think they were decisions that cost them a lot of money. The whole Nikki Beats fiasco, the idea that they're going to spend a fairly significant chunk of money, certainly above $10 million getting that whole thing ready, um, was, um, I think, boneheaded. I don't think a property of that kind can hope to, com to compete in the super luxurious um, pool market. Even if they say, oh, we're not going for the same crowd that, you know, all the other high-end day clubs, Encore Beach Clubs, and all the other Wet Republic and all that kind of stuff. They, I, I think that that was a strategic waste of money. They could have spent a lot less and really improved the existing pool, which was a classic pool make it a little bigger, a little better, nicer for the property, um, you know, and don't have, you know, they don't need to appeal to the, the young folks that the rehab and the Palms pool and some of the other ones go for. So that was a boneheaded decision. Mob experience, ridiculous. Dave hit the nail on the head. That was, that was stupid. All the other stuff I agree with Dave in terms of entertainment. Yeah, properties try stuff and fail. I think they should have got something that went with the theme. Um, you know, Gladys Knight, a great star, um, not a bad place if you can't get something good, but they, I mean, something better. But, um, you know, I, I think you got to look at the Tropicana as pretty much money well spent um, rescuing a dying, nearly dead property, putting it on life supports to where it's vi viable for at least a decade until they can sell the place, everything can be torn down. And that property can be can get something more befitting of such a sweet, sweet location. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, I think life support is a apt term, and who knows if they can hang on that long, they could end up flipping it and making quite a bit of money. Um, I want, I stayed there last spring, and the only thing that I definitely remember about hating was instead of putting, you know, most Las Vegas hotel rooms have blackout curtains so that you can you know, stay out all night and then sleep all day if you want to. They put in these shutters there instead of curtains. And so you can't ever get all the light or the sound out of the room. It's like the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, and I, I couldn't sleep. It was terrible. So I, I don't know whose idea that was, but it was a bad idea. 
And uh, I should add, they have a parking garage that no locals casino should aspire to, much less a casino on the Strip. One of the absolute worst. I mean, you know, it, it, it doesn't have the obstructionist problems that Imperial Palace has, so you can't say it's the worst, but... I would say it's fair to call it the most chicken shit casino of a major casino, uh, parking garage of a major casino on the strip. Now, the ironic thing is, except for maybe once or twice, I've never not gotten a great space when I've parked the property. You're just lucky. Yeah. I mean, which has been probably, probably six s- times over the, in the past two months. And, and, and unfortunately, as I've learned in talking about... Uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of operators about parking garages. It's much more important than the locals' casino business. Um, and like when the Orleans, for its first like you know ten years of operation, it had one of those same kind of parking garages, a one deck garage where they used the roof for valet and people parked it down below. And it was always totally full. The surface parking was full. You had to park like you know in a truck lot behind the Orleans if you wanted to go there on a Friday or Saturday night. That speaks about bad parking and inconvenience to customers that drives people off. But it also says you have a property that's attractive to people they want to get into if you don't have enough parking. And, and that's, you know, that's usually a good sign for the business they want to do, but it also means a, a developer should put a, big, a good garage up in a hurry. That place, the fact that you can get good parking in such a pathetic garage says something about how <laughs> much how exciting it is and how much people don't care about going there. Um, so, you know, that is a bad sign for a property that's such a tiny, ridiculous amateur hour garage has space available. Um, that's not a good thing. Uh, moving on from Tropicana, uh, let's talk about another property that is just down the street, right across the street from us here, which is Cosmopolitan. Cosmo is coming up on its one-year anniversary. Um, another property that had, I think, a lot of goodwill going into their opening. Um, there were some customer service and hotel-related problems that got some attention. Uh, but since then, I think the biggest story has been that just no one gambles there. Uh, their numbers for the casino are usually pretty pathetic. Um, and as excited as people are about their food and beverage and some of the other parts of the property, which are really quite nice, the casino is such an important part of any Las Vegas strip property. It's a major, major drag on their numbers. And I guess the question is, you know, it's been a year. How long will Cosmopolitan's owners give Cosmopolitan management to turn that around before they start heaving out some of the top dogs? Um, Dave, any comments on that? Yeah, it's pretty clear to me, going all the way up to the top of the food chain, that building a gaming database and building the casino business is not a priority there. Clearly, they prioritize food and beverage. If you look at everything they do, it's food and beverage, food and beverage, food and beverage. When they did the little purple truck thing and did the deals for locals, all food and beverage deals, one ridiculously awful gaming deal. You know, they don't do nearly the amount of promotion that other casinos here do to try to build up their gaming business. So basically, I think what you have is folks who are not really casino operators, a you know, a CEO who's not a hardcore casino gaming guy, he's more of a hotel guy who are focusing on what they do, which is build the hotel business, build the food and beverage, build the brand. And they're very big about that brand. So building that and I think that's what their strategy is, and just kind of do that until 
you might get an operator interested in it, and then they'll then they'll probably sell it for half of what they paid to build it. Yeah, and then they'll probably junk the brand and just focus on getting people in the casino. So the, it's pretty obvious that they. I don't. I'm not sure that they're bothered that the casino business is that bad. Even you don't even think Deutsche Bank cares. I, Apparently not, because they've done nothing to try to turn it around. Now, if they were sending out um, direct mail, a lot of direct mail to folks, if they were doing a big promotion with come in, like the Tropicana, you know, come in on the first $200 is an us, which they've really pushed a lot. Cosmopolitan did, I think, a $100 thing for about a week. And even then, I was walking the floor with some folks. We walked by one of the pits where there was no action going on. We asked the pit boss or uh, foreman, like, hey, what's the deal with this? And he just said, I don't know. In a very surly way, I don't know about that. Oh, really? Well, where could we find out? I don't know. Go, go over to the desk. Literally like that. So clearly they've not empowered their people about this program. So I don't think they think it's a problem. Hunter asked, how long can the property go on? Uh leaving um, the food and beverage. And apparently, you know, you've got to give that property credit. It's, it has a cool-looking interior. I think the buildings, you know, fit in next to the city center pretty well. Plenty of parking. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, good good parking garage. Love the parking garage. Um, I have not had to, I've not gone in or out of the place when they've had, you know, they apparently have some occasional obstruction problems when, you know, Marquis is in full swing on a Friday or Saturday night. I haven't had to deal with that, so no complaints from me. I love the parking garage. Ranks right below uh, Palazzo is my favorite one in town. Um, but I, And so I like underground ones. But Cosmopolitan's, um, the question of whether John Unwin can stay there long, um, you know, with its present casino performance, um, the question of whether Deutsche Bank will, uh, you know, hold on to the property for long. You know, Hunter asked how long. At the risk of sounding like our nation's, uh, you know, foremost civil rights pioneer, I would answer, how long? Not long. Um, you know, I don't think he can, he can stay in there long. I don't think the company can. Um, my, my suspicion all along has been that Deutsche Bank made a ridiculous financial decision to an decision um, for, from an outsider's perspective. I presume that they didn't want to take an even bigger loss in a year that, you know, everyone in their sector was taking giant losses. So they sort of threw more good money after bad with the idea that when time, you know, and this is a country with trillions and trillions of dollars. So a couple billion dollars, you know, you know, is, is chump change to them. They threw a couple billion do dollars into it knowing that when times got better, they could use whatever loss they have to take on the eventual sale of the property and on the losses they're going to run up until that day, <clears throat> they can use those losses to offset future gains. So, you know, I don't want to say Deutsche, Deutsche Bank are idiots because I'm sure they have a plan. They're not stupid. I know the people on the, uh, you know, the bond and equity side of that business, a totally different side of their business, it is, a, it is a company with some very bright people um, in it. So I'm not saying that they're stupid, but I'm saying that from an outsider's perspective, from, a, you know, from our perspective, they threw a bunch of good money after bad. They're never going to get it back. It may make some kind of convoluted, twisted financial sense in, in the, you know, the sort of peculiar way 
that major businesses and major bankers more specifically do what they do. That is a property. The, the casino is, you know, a festering bomb hole. Um, I mean, it really is almost unbelievable how bad they've done. This here, this property is an example of a property that was sunk by um, its, its inability to generate casino business. They also didn't have a database, so they had one that dated to eight years to, you know, a substandard group of probably long dead players. But, <laughs> but, but this place failed in part because of that. Um, and also the post 9-11 tourism downturn. But Aladdin, you mean? Aladdin, yeah. yes. Now, Planet Hollywood, you look out there, this place is much nicer <clears throat> now, and they have the robust, um, the best and most functioning giant player card system. Um, you know, people may criticize it, but Total Rewards is unparalleled. Anyone who deals with any of their competitors know that, they, that the competitors don't have their shit together. This company does. Cosmopolitan, um, they supposedly hired great casino hosts from top high-end competitors. You know, those guys are stealing. Um, they're getting money for nothing because that casino is not making squat um, unless there is a third quarter turnaround, which I doubt. Um, you know, e you know, incremental improvement. You know, if it's just small, that's not enough. That property needs to make an eye-opening, you know, 160-degree turnaround. If they can't get 180, um, it and and you have to suspect that they're not going to be able to do it. Um, everybody up here that's met John Owen seems to think, you know, he's a wonderful guy. Um, his staff gave us this Johnny Walker blue level, blue label when, uh, you know, Chuck had his uh, hilarious, to me, un, you know, not so hilarious to him, um, check-in travail right when they opened. But um, it's, they seem Six like... Six hours isn't normal to get yeah, checked into your hotel room? They seem, they seem like good people. But I think they're in over their heads, and uh, you know, soon um, they'll probably uh, be looking at Monster.com. I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of jump in here and be a little bit contrarian. I think they know exactly what they're getting with John Unwin. I think their approach is very carefully tailored. If you talk to Lisa Marchese, who is their VP, SVP of brand, whatever it is, identity, they're, they have a laser-like focus on that. And there's a very good reason that they've been tweeting so much about foster the people and they've never tweeted about anybody hitting a royal flush there. Or they've never, they never tweet anything about gaming. They always tweet about this kind of artsy stuff, that sort of stuff, you know, the random link bait stuff. So there's a good reason for that. And I think, you know, whether they know what they're doing or not, I don't know, but I think they think they know what they're doing and I think they have the confidence of their higher-ups in Deutsche Bank. So I, I think they're executing a strategy. Right. I don't know if it's the right one, but they're doing what, they're, what they think is the right thing to do. Jack? So I want to ask the uh, attended group of people, who, there, who of you all have played $25 blackjack at the Cosmopolitan? Who of you all have had $24 spaghetti at the mm -hmm. Cosmopolitan? It's about even. No, wait, there's more spaghetti. So... That's the informal science says spaghetti, spaghetti. blackjack. I mean, you can't, you cannot criticize. 
their so food many. and beverage. Their food and beverage has been it's a awesome. spectacular yeah. success. I think they very strategically and intelligently sort of restricted opening room supply in a way that created um, the highest average daily rates or right up there with win at times um, uh, in, on the strip. And, you know, that's really saying something. Very, very intelligent moves there. Looking at what their quarterly numbers say, if that is their strategic decision, we know what we're doing. We're not going to market gaming. We're going to market rooms and food and beverage. You know, they've done, they've executed it very well. And um, you just have to question um, the most successful casino properties on the Strip um, use food and beverage as a money-making source increasingly on the beverage side. Um, certainly, we have a room capacity problem still in Las Vegas, but they've done very well there. Um, you, but you have to question the the why they would um, accept such poor casino performance. Now, maybe they believe that their customer hates the casino and wants to go to a place that doesn't, you know, emphasize its casino. Um, I certainly know in the media world where we have a bunch of sort of casino-hating people in Las Vegas, it's, a, it's amazing, but a lot of our, you know, most prominent, bi- uh, most prominent reporters don't like gambling, don't like the casino, so they love Cosmopolitan. And, and, you know, quite frankly, my girlfriend, it's her favorite property in town. She's not, you know, a gambler. Um, I mean, she'll humor me when I do, but um, it's, it, is a, it is a place that does not appeal to gamblers for some reason. And if Dave is right that they want that, um, you know, obviously they would accept more revenue, but I just think, you know, that that entire team that has bought into that strategy is not going to last long because if it does, I mean, when you look at their room rates and how the restaurants are doing, they're doing so well, how can they raise that revenue side? And they're losing money every quarter. There's only one way for them to improve. It's on the gaming side. So if they don't do it, it's either they're, it's a company full of, money masochists or people are going to be out on their ass asses and you know um i'm betting on the latter um tell us how you really feel uh i think it's an interesting topic and obviously you know we're coming up on the one year anniversary and it will be really interesting to see what happens next to see how long these guys survive um, and if they're, you know, if we're doing this next year and they're still all in their jobs, that will definitely, I think, say something. Um, I, I, we're going to wrap up the Vegas gang portion of our show here and move on to the next section in a minute. So I have one more question for the panel, a short one. Um, and then after we're done with that, you know, you guys definitely hit the bar. There's, I think, some food rolling around. The next thing up is going to be our Stump Dr. Dave segment. You can ask some questions about casinos, Star Trek. Kids, oh, babies, parenting, carpet, carpeting. Oh. Um, he's a, he's Not a collages. master, and you can win some good stuff. <laughs> so um, you know, I would say grab a beer if you want to trek to the bathroom, which is way the hell down there. Definitely do that, but you definitely want to come back. Um, we uh, we have a lot of fun doing kind of the more analytical stuff, but I think the rest of the show is going to be a little bit more wacky and crazy. So we definitely want you to stick around. Um, and so that's all in just one second. My last question for the group, um, and this is really kind of for Jeff because. Columbia, Sussex. They used to own the Tropicana. 
they lost that because they were just ridiculously dumb. Uh, they were over in the West End over here on, on Flamingo down the street from Bally's. And now it turns out that they're, they're losing that place as well. So they're exiting this market. Jeff, how sad are you about <laughs> Columbia Sussex leaving Las Vegas? You know, for um, the market and for the casino business to lose a visionary, a genius like Bill Young, um, probably the brightest of the Columbia, I mean, I'm sorry, he and his Columbia Sussex cohort um, were probably the brightest, the most intelligent group of Kentucky imbeciles ever ever to enter the ever to enter the casino owning business on a large scale in Las Vegas um, probably also the dumbest because there haven't been many um, although there you know actually northern Kentucky with Newport has a great history in gambling and Dr. Dave could probably tell you all about that it's um, it appeal it's a market that uh, goes after my home state of Ohio so I sort of have a you know uh, I, uh, um, <laughs> warm spot in my heart for people who have are connected to Ohio and I think Columbia Sussex even though they're in Kentucky they you know that's really greater Cincinnati where they're at um, but they've just proven themselves to be such fools I've had a long-running battle with them um, they took out a full-page newspaper ad in the review journal um, calling me and my status as a business business journalist an oxymoron you know, a for a company that was about to go bankrupt, spending 15 or 20k on that, um, you know, probably sort of a reflection on their uh, on their uh, Kentucky IQs. So um, I should be nicer to Kentucky. Sorry. Kentucky. Have you considered framing a copy and sending it back to Bill? You know, that's that's actually amusing. I you know I certainly you know left him a voicemail message um, after that, and you know I mean. It, if he, anybody who thinks that going after a journalist in a public setting is distressing to a journalist, I mean, it really is a badge of honor, and journalists love that. Um, so thank you, Bill Young. And uh, adios, Bill Young. We are, we, uh, Bill, we hardly knew ye. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, your, uh, your predecessors made out like bandits when you bought the property for ridiculously high price the property and its billion, sister properties for a ridiculously high price. You amused us with your, uh, your insane idea to build a 10,000 room, um, collection of, uh, crappy airport hotel quality hotel rooms and, a and a cobbled together casino. You exited with your tail between your legs and you're back to run, <clears throat> you're back to running, uh, moldy carpet smelling airport motels gouging travelers around the nation so good to you bill young in columbia sussex i hate you all right guys um that's gonna wrap it up for the vegas gang portion we're gonna take a really short break uh while we set up for the stump doctor dave please go grab a drink please get some uh i think i saw some food rolling around um, and if you have uh, a question, you think you can stump Dr. Dave, we've got some really Thank great you, prizes. Thank uh, you, great. And uh, it would be really interesting to see uh, if you can pull it off. So thank you guys. And uh, we're going to get and set up for, uh, for our next segment. Thank so thanks you. a lot.